<laughs> well, I will draw your attention back to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. We will be reading this morning God's holy word as is found in Ephesians 2, verse 14, through the end of the chapter. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, ruler of all things, Sovereign Lord, oh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Christ came and preached peace to us. We thank you that there is a way that we might draw nigh unto you, that we might come near to you through the blood and through the body of Jesus Christ that was offered on behalf of us on the cross. Lord, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the one who could make atonement for our sins. We thank you for the one that could satisfy your wrath against sin on our behalf. Who has taken our sins upon him and clothed us in his righteousness. That we might be reconciled to you. Lord, we thank you for what that also brings to us that not only are we reconciled to you, but that we are reconciled one to each other. Or that those who were once enemies, once at enmity, not only to you, but to each other, might be made into one new man. Lord, we thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you for the sovereignty of your plan and your purpose in bringing that about so that we might know you, that we might love you, we might experience your love for us, we might experience salvation. Lord, we thank you. Speak to us through your word this morning, Lord, that we might hear from you in your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, it was a joy last week to look at the power of Christ and what he has done for us what He has accomplished and what His work made possible 
to those who were Gentiles in the flesh. Those who were far off, as we see in Ephesians 2, those who were separated from him, alienated, strangers to his promise, hopeless and without God. It was wonderful to see that Christ himself, the promised one, has taken us and brought us near by his own blood. And not only reconciled us to God, but to our brothers and sisters as well. In the case of our text last week, we read that he broke down this wall of separation. This wall that existed, this dividing wall of hostility that we read about in verse 14 of Ephesians 2. And we even talked about the physical representation of this. If you remember back to last week's message, the physical representation of this there in the Rhodian temple, this wall that divided these courts that the Gentiles could go this far and no farther. And it was the farthest from there where the glory of God made his presence in the temple known. This morning we'll look more into this and then Lord willing, we will turn back at the end to consider a great doctrine that we find here in the text this morning regarding the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The reality of that which was pictured from Genesis 3 all the way through the Old Testament. This picture of this one that was going to come as the reality of that which was typified in the Old Testament. What was in one sense a, a shadow of that which was to come. We have dealt with this before, but I'll mention here it again. Uh, I don't remember when we, we talked about this before, but it's like seeing a picture of something, what we see in the Old Testament. It's like seeing a picture of something. There's great benefit to seeing a picture and, and what that picture represents for us, right? Uh, we, we, we can find joy if it's a picture of a loved one. We might find joy in that. I remember when I first received a picture of my wife, I don't remember if it was my sister or uh, my brother-in-law or who it was that brought it to me, but I, I received a picture of my wife and there was joy in seeing her picture. But it paled in comparison to when I was with her. So we might find joy in a picture. We might find longing to see the reality in a picture or a type. I think we spoke of before uh, seeing a picture of the Grand Canyon. Oh, the picture is majestic. The picture is, is amazing. And what wonder and amazement we might have at seeing a great picture of the Grand Canyon. But it would be something small in comparison to standing at the edge, the precipice of this canyon that's a mile deep. A picture can't begin to compare to the reality or the substance of the true. As a person who spent considerable amount of time in photography, uh, spent time in photography and around photography, I've studied some amazing photographs from some of the greatest photographers, Franz Lanning and, and Ansel Adams and some of these, these individuals. Uh, I've studied those photographs and there's a lot that you can learn from the photograph, from the type of what they photographed. 
But then if you go to visit that place or see the object that they photographed, it's so much more. A photo is a two-dimensional thing. It encompasses one sense that we have been given by God to experience the world around us. It's our sight. But when we go and we see the reality, Niagara Falls, the Grand Canyon, we take in the sight, we hear the sounds, we feel, we taste, we smell. The reality is so much more than the picture or the type. So let's look to God's Word here this morning and pray that we might end up uh, opening up the reality of this picture as we draw this message to a close. In verse 15 of Ephesians 2, we read, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Last week, we ended with verse 14, looking at what the Scripture relates to us, that He Himself, that's Christ, is our peace, who has made us, that's Jews and Gentiles, both one, and He's broken down that that middle wall of hostility, that dividing wall of hostility between the two. If you didn't get a chance to hear this, feel free to go back and listen to to the, the message from this text and it, because it builds this whole section of, of Ephesians, from, for starting in verse 1 of Ephesians 1, just continues to build on this great theme of salvation from Paul. The inspired word of God through the pen of Paul. This morning, we see how that was done. Christ did this. He himself became our peace, making us one by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. What is it that he has done? He has abolished, he has put an end to these ordinances. Matthew Henry states it like this, By his suffering in the flesh, he took away the binding power of the ceremonial law, so removing that cause of enmity and distance between them, the Jews and the Gentiles, which is here called the law of commandments contained in ordinances because it enjoined a multitude of external rites and ceremonies, and consisted of many institutions and appointments about the outward parts of divine worship. The legal ceremonies, Matthew Henry says, were abrogated by Christ having their accomplishment in Him. By taking these out of the way, He formed one church, of believers, whether they had been Jews or Gentiles. Thus, he made in himself of twain, of two, one new man. He framed both these parties into one new society or body of God's people, uniting them to himself as their common head, 
they being renewed by the Holy Ghost and now concurring in a new way of gospel worship. So making peace between these two parties who were so much at variance before. I wish I had the mind of some of these Puritans. <laughs> Says so much right there about what Paul is teaching us the Holy Spirit is teaching us through the pen of Paul as recorded here in Ephesians. Once again, he took away, he abolished the ceremonial law, the ordinance expressed in this, this law. Not the moral, as that which is holy and right will always be holy and right in the eyes of God. But that which pictured what was holy and right that which pictured how to approach God has been changed as the substance of that pictured has now become a reality. So he took away that which pictured being drawn near to God, that those ceremonial ordinances that pictured this, that, that showed us what it was to access God because what was real? The substance of what that pictured has now become a reality through Jesus Christ. If that sounds confusing, just hang with me for a moment, please, or for a little bit. I hope to circle back to this in the end. But for now, let's just leave it by saying this. All these Old Testament ceremonial systems, all of the rituals, all the rites, the systems of cleansing and sacrifice were a picture they were a way of getting God's people to understand how they may approach a holy and righteous God. Who in Scripture, what do we, what do we read in Scripture in Habakkuk? Habakkuk 1.13 says, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So how might a person who is full of sin approach a God who is holy and righteous and is of holier eyes than to behold sin. This was the problem. This has always been the problem since sin entered the picture in the fall. <clears throat> Let's continue with the text. It is by removing these things, these ceremonial ordinances, that the Jews and the Gentiles have been made into one new man. He has done away with these things that separated them. The Jews were not allowed, the Gentiles, excuse me, were not allowed to take part in these rites and ceremonies. They were barred from entrance into the court, into the holy place, in, into the sacrificial system that the Jews had in place for drawing near to God. The Jews had the ordinances and the Gentiles did not. They were barred by this dividing wall. Now, all that is broken down. The system has now been changed from a mere type and picture to substance and reality. In doing so, there's peace. Isn't that what our text tells us? There's peace. Bringing these two groups at odds, hostile to each other, at enmity to each other, and unifying them, making them of two one new man. 
one new people. Something totally different than the two separate. Something new. This is a new creation of God. In verse 16, we read, and might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He took both Jew and Gentiles and reconciled them to God through the cross of Christ. Notice what the cross of Christ did for these two groups. It made them one. It brought them together. It killed the hostility between them. They have met and they have become one people, sharing in something far greater than that which separated them. Something much more important than the measly differences between the Jews and the Gentiles. Being reconciled to God is by far the most important thing. But there is something that comes alongside as a product of or as a benefit of being reconciled to God. And that is being reconciled to each other through the cross of Christ. William Hendrickson, more of a modern day man. William Hendrickson's probably been dead for 20, 30 years. Something like that. But wrote a commentary on Ephesians and he says this about this passage. The basic lesson holds for all time. From the beginning till now and will until Christ comes back. The reason why there is so much strife in this world between individuals, families, social or political groups, whether small or large, is that the contending parties, through the fault of either or both, have not found each other at Calvary. Only then, when sinners have been reconciled to God through the cross, will they truly be reconciled to each other. This shows how very important it is to preach the gospel to all men and to beseech them on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For a world torn by unrest and friction, Hendrickson says, for that world, the gospel is the only answer. The only one. There is no other. You'll never find society's solutions for this problem to be effective. Do you see what an amazing byproduct it is that comes from being reconciled to God? Eternity, my friends, will be spent in glory, in the presence of God, being near to Him with all manner of other men and women who, through the flesh, may have been at odds with you and me. And apart from the cross of Christ, would have remained at odds with you and I. But through the cross of Christ, we can be one. He, that is Christ, through the cross, has done what, according to our text, He has killed the hostility. That is an amazing way of putting it. 
that which caused the, the hostility between us, he's killed. It's done. It has no life. It has no power because he's killed it. In verse 17, he came and preached to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Here is a, an amazing verse to me. Christ preached peace. He preached peace to both Jew and Gentile. To those who were far off, to the Gentiles, he preached peace. To those who were near, the Jews, he preached peace. They both had need of peace. The Gentiles, on threat of death, were walled off. Remember the signs that have been found in archaeology from this Herodian temple that barred them, that wall that was dividing them, and the, the signs that were there? It's death. If you cross, it's death. Gentile, if you, if you go over this mark, your death will be on your own head. This is what amazing though, that both of these groups needed to have peace proclaimed to them. Peace must be proclaimed through Christ to sinners, all men, all nations, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no exception to that, not one. Even the Jews who had by ceremonial ordinances the right to draw near, they were puffed up. They were proud of their privilege. And it was a privilege to be sure that they might draw near to God through the way that He had established for them to do that. But they forgot what it was truly all about. The vast majority of them. It wasn't about them and not about what was outward. All these ceremonies were to show what God had provided to them as a way to draw near to Him. It wasn't about their works enabling them to do that. God must provide the peace, not their works providing peace. All men must receive this peace, just like salvation, you don't earn this peace. It's a gift. Look at what Scripture tells us in Matthew 9, 10 through 13. <clears throat> In Matthew 9, starting in verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came to Him and were reclining with Jesus and His disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to His disciples, Why does your teacher eat, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when He, that's when Christ heard it, He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what that means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ brings peace. Christ preaches peace to sinners. In Luke 19, verse 5, verse 5 through 10, Luke 19, verse 5, we read, And when Jesus came to the place, if you remember, this is where Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus gets up to where he can see the Lord. Kids used to sing a song about this all the time. 
Zacchaeus, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man. Listen to what Jesus says. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He has peace for the lost. He has peace for sinners. And Paul our writer of this epistle that we're in this morning, this epistle of Ephesians, says in a letter to Timothy under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 15. And he's speaking about himself here. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. 1 Timothy 1, 12. I thank, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And just in case you would think that Paul is somehow saying he was worthy of this or that he had earned this right. He says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost or I am chief. Peace for sinners Peace for those estranged in sin to a holy God by the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 18. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. The door has been thrown open. Both Jew and and Gentile have access to the Father through the Spirit in Christ. Here is proof that the cross of Christ has accomplished what we are told about all through this first part of Ephesians. Here is the proof. In Christ, what do we read in Ephesians? In Christ, in Christ, in Him. In Jesus Christ, over and over and over again, through the first chapter of Ephesians and on into the second chapter, we read about this plan of God from before the foundation of the world to place a people in Christ and in Him, by Him, through Him, to accomplish the salvation and their salvation. And, and here it is. Paul is telling us that through Him we have access in the Spirit to the Father. God was pleased with Christ's sacrifice. Propitiation, satisfaction was made at the cross of Christ. 
Romans 3 tells us that God put Christ forward as propitiation by His blood. He bore on the cross the wrath of God and satisfied all that wrath. God poured it out on Jesus Christ that He might provide peace with God for us. That we might draw near to Him. That we might have access to God. That we who because of our sin were unable to draw near to God, barred from the presence of God, might have entrance, that we might have access in the Spirit, in one Spirit, all of us, whether Jews or Gentiles, might have access to the Father. And then in verse 19, I love these connecting phrases in Scripture. So then... In verse 19 of Ephesians 2, So then, or in light of what Christ has done, because of what Christ has accomplished, we are told, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Not in any way, we can go back to what we've read further in Ephesians before, we've come to this, not because of us, Not because of what we have done. If God didn't provide a way, every one of us would still be on the outside. Like that illustration we used last week of being on the outskirts of this city, outside the walls. Outside those walls where there's no hope. That's where we would be had God not provided for us a way. The way that we read about that He planned before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1, chapter 1. But thanks be to God and His great plan, as Paul would say in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. This is what He's blessed us with. He's made a way for us. No longer on the outside, no longer strangers. We talked about this last week. No longer strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. But notice that we are not just acquainted here in in this verse that we're dealing with now. In verse uh, verse 19. No longer, just, just, just not that we're no longer strangers. But notice that we are, we're not just acquainted with those who are members of, of God's people, but we're fellow citizens. We're fellow citizens. We're not just on neutral terms. We're citizens of this kingdom. And not just given the rights of citizens, but something even more, that we've been made members of the household of God. Adopted into God's family. Do you see how great the truths are that Paul is showing us? He's building up these truths and our understanding of these truths throughout what he's been teaching us. 
by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Ephesians 1 on into Ephesians 2. And now as we come to the conclusions of Ephesians 2, he's putting it all together. That we're fellow citizens. And what's more, we're members of the household of God. And there's even more to it than just being members of the family. In Ephesians 2, the last part of this chapter, verses 20 through 22, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are members of the family, the household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ being that chief cornerstone of that household. The stone, that that cornerstone, that stone to which every other stone, every wall, every pillar is built in line with and in accordance to the chief cornerstone. The very first thing, I think I told you this before, talking about my grandfather building houses and building commercial buildings, the very first thing that's set is the cornerstone. And everything else is laid out according to that. That's what Paul is telling us here. We are built, being built into this structure whose foundation is the apostles and the prophets, but the chief cornerstone where it's all laid out is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in accordance to this that the whole structure, each and every one of the redeemed of the Lord are being joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, made, being built together, Jew and Gentile, being built together into a dwelling place for God. This is something no human mind can conceive and no human hand can build. In Acts, we read in Acts 7, verse 44, excuse me, 44 through 48, our father, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had, pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a, asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And later in Acts, Acts 17 Verse 22 through 25. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the the, the pronunciation for that just slipped my mind. Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." The temple, the tabernacle, was a picture of how to access God, of how to gain nearness to God. What an amazing gift of God's grace and mercy to have this revealed to us and to see the substance instead of the type or the picture. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. He's building us together into a dwelling place for God. We have been granted in a most precious gift of God's grace through the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us. Grace that is lavished upon us that we might have access to the Father in the Spirit through Jesus Christ and that we are being made into something miraculous. Let's take a, a moment here, and uh, I trust you'll bear with me as we read a, a lengthy passage of Scripture here in a moment. There's something that sticks out to me so clearly through this passage over the la that we've looked at over the last two weeks. Uh, there are times that I kind of wish that our services could be three, four, five hours so that we could get through things like this in one sitting. But such is not the case. So we will do this as, we, as we're able. But there is so much of the Old Testament system that we have alluded to here in this passage. I think sometimes we come to those passages in our reading, those Old Testament passages about the systems and the ordinances and all these things. We come to these in these times when we're reading them and because they're somewhat repetitive and it takes a long time. It's slow reading, right? But we skim over them. And we gloss over the details to get to the stuff that's easier to read and that we're quite honestly more capable of comprehending. If you're like me and you're, you're reading through this Bible program, this, this chronological Bible reading program that we've, we've talked about. You've probably either just read the part of Scripture that I'm talking about 
or you're there right now. And it's daunting to get through. There's no doubt. <clears throat> so if you're, if you're there, you'll know what I'm talking about. But one of the chief things, if we'll just take the time and read it and read it again and read it again, as laborious as it may seem, there's some things that we'll start to pick up from those scriptures. And much of what we see and learn through these passages deal with the precision and the exactness of what God requires. And much of that is in regards to access, which we've touched on here this morning, access to Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated, you all know that I'm fond of Martin Lloyd-Jones, but he stated, I believe it was in his uh, his commentary and his preaching through Ephesians, that this whole system that we see in the Old Testament, this system of ordinances that were part of the, the law, these ceremonies, these ordinances, these rituals, the whole system is a picture of how one may have access to God. It is His way. It's His requirements. Think of just the, the, the robe that Aaron was to wear in his sons. The exactness, the precision that God even had to bless supernaturally, miraculously, a man who had the knowledge and the skill to make the tabernacle. Those who would make the robe that the high priest Aaron would wear, the garments that the sons would wear, the curtains in the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the way that it was made, the way that it was covered, all of these things, the exact specifications that are listed, yes, over and over again in Scripture. But it's a picture of His requirements, His rules, His methods, and apart from that, we are not admitted to the presence of God. This was shown in the manner in which the high priest accessed the holy place and the most holy place in the tabernacle. The penalty was severe for a breach of protocol. It was a death sentence. Look at some time and read about Nadab and Abihu. There in Leviticus 10, they author, offered unauthorized fire. Now, we don't know exactly what that was. The speculation is that it was some incense that was not to be offered to God. And they, they, this unauthorized or strange fire, as some translations record it, they offered this to the Lord. It was not what He had specified. And what did God do? He consumed them with fire. Now this was not just Joe Schmo from the nation of Israel. This were the, these were the high priest's sons. And God consumed them because they did what He said not to do. They did it their own way. 
Think about Uzzah. Do you remember Uzzah? Uzzah, that man who as they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant, which no man was allowed to touch. You re- Once again, you read about how God constructed these things. He constructed it so that there were two holes in each side. And these, I, I believe they were acacia wood poles that were covered in bronze, I believe, were slid through, or gold, were slid through these rings so that no man would have to touch the Ark because the Ark was holy. And this ark is being transported in this cart by oxen. And the cart, one of the oxen stumbled or, or the cart started to turn and the ark was falling. And Uzzah, a man who was trying to do something good, in, in keeping the ark from touching the ground, reached out and took a hold of the ark and the Lord struck him dead. Because no man was to touch the ark. That was God's command, and he breached God's law, and he died because of it. All these things that we learn about how man may approach God, and how man may not approach God. But the other thing that we understand through all of this is that these things were pictures and types of that which was perfect, which would come. This is very important for us to understand. They were physical symbols. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place with man. It's where he had his his presence was displayed to man. Yet John tells us, In John 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, what he is saying is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. When He came in the form of human flesh, it was time for the old pictures to be done away with. He Himself, not in the temple, but He tabernacled Himself in bodily form with us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. He's saying that the picture, the symbol that was used in the wilderness, the house that was used in Jerusalem, where this dividing wall was, it's no longer needed. The reality has come. The symbol fades into nothing. There is no purpose in it anymore. When the substance is present, you don't need the picture. The blood sprinkled on almost everything in the Old Testament. Nothing in reality but a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed for His people. The Lamb's blood on the doorpost there in Egypt, that blood was actually doing nothing but being a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ that would be shed and be a covering for us that we might not experience death, that we might have life. 
the blood sprinkled on the altar, the blood sprinkled on the unclean, the blood in all of these ceremonies, blood after blood, sacrifice after sacrifice, so that this blood, we read earlier about the blood being placed on the, the right earlobe and the right thumb and the right, right uh, to, big toe of Aaron and his sons. This blood was a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. The substance that was to be realized when God the Son tabernacled among us and shed His blood on Calvary's cross to be a covering for our sin. Is it any wonder that John records for us in John 1, a few, few verses after John 1, 14. John records by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in John 1, 29, the next day he, that's John the Baptist, Elijah, if you will, the one who was the forerunner. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said again in John 1.36, and he looked, that's John the Baptist once again, looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said again, Behold the Lamb of God. He is saying here, right here, Jesus Christ is the substance of everything that the Old Testament pictured for us in the sacrifice. In every sacrifice that was made on behalf of the people of Israel, here is the substance of those pictures. He is the spotless Lamb of God. We can't take time to read through all the Old Testament texts. Something I hope you'll do in your own study or in your family worship. And what a great thing that would be to do this week with next week us coming to the Lord's table to look back at all those things that pictured the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But let's look at a scripture here and I'm not going to read all of it. I trust you'll go back uh, maybe this afternoon and read Hebrews 9 as well. But I want to, for, for time's sake... We'll start with Hebrews 10 and read verse 1 through 22. I know this is a lengthy passage of Scripture. But this puts it all together for us. And as it's God's holy inspired word, it does a much better job of putting it together than I could ever begin to do. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single Sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. When there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to what? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way. That new way we read about and, and, and looked at in Ephesians. By this new and living way that He, that is Jesus Christ, opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us what? Let us draw near. We have access to draw near through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is why it is so important that we preach Christ and Him crucified. We can't be like the Jews had grown to be, that the outward adherence to the law was what made them special, or that by keeping, by working to keep it, 
they would gain acceptance and access to God. If that ever enters your mind, and we ought to ask ourselves this question all the time, am I relying on God's work? Or am I relying on something that I have done? And if you're relying on something you've done, you should cast it away as quick and as violently as you possibly can. And look to Christ. We must proclaim, we must profess, we must herald Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's for this reason that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-2, And I, when I came to you, brothers... I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This one chief thing matters. I must know this. I must proclaim this. I must profess this. I must live by this, that Christ has died and was crucified on my behalf as that Lamb of God that John the Baptist pointed us to. He shed His blood, offered up His body for me. Is not this what He was getting at with His disciples during their last meal together? That we're going to commemorate next week? This is my body. This is my blood, which is offered for you. I hear a lot of moral Lessons being preached from the pulpit today. And it's not that they're bad. I just heard a message this week where a guy was going on and on about a football story. Moral lesson from a football story. Where is the gospel? Where is God's word? In what you're giving to a people who have need of hearing the truth, of hearing the good news. Listen, when I tell you this, I can speak of morality. I can speak of finances. I can speak of marriage, and we'll get to those things in Ephesians. But I can speak of that. I can speak about children, and I can teach and proclaim work ethic. I can teach about work-related issues, about bosses and employees and masters and servants or slaves. We can talk about all these things. I can speak and teach and we can be masters of all these things and still go to hell. That's the reality. I can know all these things and still be uncircumcised in my heart. I can proclaim these things and still be a stranger to the commonwealth of Israel. There were many of Israel Jewish descent who are strangers as well. I can know all these things inside and out and still have no hope and be without God in this world. And we're fools if we think that every civilization, Gentiles included, didn't have some sort of morality. But morality doesn't give you access to God. What does our text tell us in Ephesians 2? The blood of Jesus Christ. The body of Jesus Christ that was slain on the cross at Calvary gives you access 
to God. Brings you into reconciliation with God. Brings you into right standing. Not because of what you did, not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to your account. The forgiveness of sins and a righteousness that is not our own. So what's the solution? What's the answer to this? I must know Christ. I must be brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. I must be covered in that blood. The picture of the Old Testament for us, the blood sacrifice, the blood being spread on the altar, the blood being applied to the high priest so that they might be sanctified and set apart, holied, that they might enter into that holy place to make atonement on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. That's a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what I must know. That's what I must have applied for me. We must know Him and Him crucified. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You that we have your word to teach us these things and to show us these things. We have the Spirit who enlightens us and gives us discernment to, to know and understand these things, Lord, and to apply them to us. Lord, we, we have the Spirit who resides in us. Lord, that we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for the new man that you've created. taking that old dead man and making him alive by, by giving us the Holy Spirit, by replacing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, by being for us and providing for us where we had no way in and of ourselves to approach You, to be in Your presence, to be reconciled to You, we have nothing but sin to offer, but Christ has taken that sin upon Him. He's paid the debt for our sin, and He's given us the, His own robe of righteousness that we may come into Your presence, that we may approach You, that we may boldly approach the throne of grace. Lord, prepare our hearts for next week as we come to Your table. your name we pray. Amen.